Hold on to your hats, the countdown to the biggest wellness event of the year is on. Join our side August 15 and 16 in Melbourne for not one, but two days of Powerhouse Wellness, featuring 11 of Australia's most inspiring, entertaining, educating, fermentating speakers. Damo, what is fermentating? MP, I'll tell you at the summit. Your favourite wellness couch speakers are joined by special guest Nat Kringudis on all things hormones and female health. Join the Up For A Chat girls, the wellness guys, the natural nutritionist Steph Lowe, Kale Brock, Quirky Cookings, Joe Witt, Marcus Pierce, and the rest of your favourite wellness couch podcasters. Regular and VIP tickets are still available, but hurry before this summit is sold out. For tickets, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. The Wellness Summit is proudly brought to you by Well and You. Be someone that makes you happy. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello, and how are you going? Welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today I'm very excited to because I get to talk to one of my psychology heroes, Dr. Sarah Elman, who is a clinical psychologist and author of Change Your Thinking. She's also a trainer for the Australian Psychological Society and the Black Dog Institute and a regular guest on the Tony Delroy show. And anyone who knows me knows that at my events I sell a few bits and pieces of of work or CDs or books that I absolutely love and I think great. And, and the book that I often sell is Change Your Thinking by Dr. Sarah Elliman. So it's really very exciting for me to be able to bring her to you and have a chat to her. So welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Carrie, and thanks for that lovely introduction. <laughs> so, Sarah, tell us a bit about yourself and, and how you became a psychologist and what you're doing at the moment. Well, my first career was actually teaching and I studied economics and politics at uh, university and became an economics commerce teacher, uh, which I did for 10 years in Melbourne. And um, I never really felt terribly excited or passionate by um, particularly the subject area that I was doing. But at the same time, I had learnt meditation and was sort of interested, had an interest in psychology and stress. I think I was always someone who got stressed very easily. Um, And in 1987, my partner and I moved to Sydney and I knew that I didn't want to continue teaching, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I ended up doing initially some voluntary work and then some paid work at Hopewood Health Centre, which um, at the time uh, was uh, a centre for people uh, to, to come along to and spend a few days or a week or two weeks to deal with stress, to de-stress, to relax, to have massages and um, to find out more about how to manage upsetting emotions. So at the time I approached Hopewood and offered to run some uh, workshops in meditation and stress management and at that stage I had absolutely no qualifications other than being very interested in the topic and and, um, sort of reading a lot of self-help books and as I said initially I did some voluntary work there and then as um, as you know, I used to go there 
once a month. They've subsequently offered me a position, a paid position, to work there two days a week um, running workshops. And at that stage, I started reading more and more and diversifying the sort of workshops that I was offering there. And the question would come up quite a lot from some of the, you know, the, the guests that were there, are you a psychologist? And I was a bit embarrassed um, to say, no, but I've read a lot of self-help books. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, but um, the, the, the sort of the light bulb went on and suddenly I thought, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to study psychology. And I remember coming home one day from Hopewood and telling my partner, I've, I've worked out what I want to do with my life. I want to be a psychologist. Oh, great. So in uh, 1989, I enrolled in first year psych because I already had a degree. I didn't have to do a whole second degree, but I had to do four years of psychology at uni and then two years of supervised training. Um, so I, I went through psych. I mean, I, as a mature age student, it's it's a whole different ball game to going in there, you know, when you're sort of straight out of out of high school. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, I think it was a lot easier. I was a lot more engaged and excited. And, and passionate about the topic, the content. Yeah. And, and most mature age students tend to do very well, which I, which I did at the time. And the interesting thing was it completely turned on its head a lot of the things that I was teaching at, at Hopewood because I was giving um, all sorts of uh, workshops, including things like the, the body-mind connection and that, that we all have cancerous cells in our body, but, you know, normally our, when our body is working well, it just destroys the, um, the cancer. But um, when, you know, stress actually stops us from being able to fight cancer, and you know that the, the cancer is largely a disease of um, of stress and a de depleted immune system. And I'd read this uh, from a number of self help books, and it totally made sense to me. But it's only when I started actually looking at some of the research, and originally I started looking at that in um, when I was studying, that I started understanding that it's far more complex and the research is far more inconsistent um, with some of the things that I was saying. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of the thing, you know, other other areas I found really useful, and it sort of reinforced some of the things that I was doing at Hopewood, and and found it really useful. Anyway, I graduated in nineteen ninety four, and I started looking for a job, and I noticed actually at, on the uni notice board there was there was a job advertised by Anthony Kidman who I had already, you know, read, I'd read some of his self-help books and I'd heard about him. And um, this was working, he was looking for someone to run a program for women with metastatic breast cancer. And this was, even though he was part of University of Technology Sydney, the actual program was run in collaboration with the North Shore Hospital. And it was, the actual base was at North Shore Hospital. And he was looking for somebody to actually do research to see whether psychological therapy might actually extend the life of uh, women with breast cancer um, and also to see whether it could actually improve their quality of life as well. So I got very excited about that and I just thought, me, 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 that's, that's the job. <laughs> yeah. um, so I rang, uh, rang Tony and, and, and said, look, I'd love to do this job. And he almost basically said yes over the phone um, because he, I had had a previous conversation with him on a, on a previous occasion. Anyway, I, I did get the job and ended up working at University of Technology for 10 years initially um, in research and I ended up doing a PhD in that very project. So my PhD involved looking at psychological factors in cancer 
and whether um, psychological therapy can actually improve the survival outcomes of patients with cancer and also whether it can improve um, psychological outcomes for cancer patients. So I ran a number of groups for women with advanced uh, cancer and in the end, my our research, which subsequently we found was very consistent with most other studies, was that psychological therapy cannot improve the survival time, but it can improve quality of life for women with cancer. I mean, we initially embarked on this study because there was there were two studies that suggested that um, that there could be a survival improvement, but there are you know there were certainly methodological flaws with. Um, one of them in particular and the second one also is a little bit questionable and subsequently there have been a number of other studies that have actually supported our findings so I guess my my view has has changed about that I, I still think CBT is a, an incredibly useful tool for helping people to to, to to feel better but I I don't think the the research evidence suggests that once people have got advanced cancer that um, psychological intervention can 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 cure the cancer or extend survival time yeah, but it would have been a fascinating time to, to, I mean, it sounds like that research was really meaningful for you. It really, um, you were very passionate about that particular content. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I was convinced, you know, I'd sort of come into the into the, the area initially sort of believing that mind is everything, including, um, you know, the body-mind connection is sort of the ultimate determiner and, and the psychological factors really determine uh, everything and especially the area of cancer, I think, in particular, because people feel so helpless with cancer, you know, yes. the, the treatments are, are often horrible, in fact, in some cases worse than the, the disease. And um, often, you know, people go through these really awful treatments and their, you know, their prognosis declines and they get sicker and sicker. So to think that there are psychological things that we can do for ourselves that might somehow cure or improve our prognosis is a really uh, attractive idea. And it's certainly one that I, I sort of <laughs> hung on to for quite a while uh, until I started looking more closely at the research and suddenly realising that a lot of the assumptions that I've been operating with were just you know not supported by the evidence so what was that if you can remember what was that moment like where you had to let go of these really strong held to held beliefs about uh, yeah I can remember I remember sitting in this freezing cold little room and and sort of you know and it was like one paper after another I had a you know filing cabinet full of papers that we'd ordered and one paper after another after another and it's like uh this is just not right. It was actually, I do remember, and then ringing Tony because Tony was based in another part of the, the building and saying, I don't think, you know, this is not right. <laughs> I don't think this works. Um, so we talked about that. And Tony was actually very adaptive and flexible and he said, all right, well, you know, we, we, we still need to, you know, test it out. We still need to complete the study. But, um, you know, if, if it doesn't, it doesn't, then we've got to, you know, we've got to address, you know, the, the you know, the error in you know in, in a lot of people's assumptions and we you know we need to talk about that so he was actually he was pretty good and he made me feel okay about that as well and I think that's um, something interesting that's happening at the moment and I, I speak about often on the podcast and certainly the previous episode um, of tap I did talk about how people who haven't been exposed to research and a, and a really thorough research model 
don't perhaps understand how research is interpreted, particularly you know, in the area of psychology, how we have to look at those variables that are also contributing to an outcome um, or aren't contributing to an outcome. So when people make global statements that if you do X, then Y will be cured, that that's usually very unlikely. It's it's often you have to take into consideration other variables, um, you know, whether it's physical health, psychological health, environmental factors. There's so many other things that can impact on outcome. That is so absolutely true. And it's interesting that even the media constantly promoted the studies that showed, you know, so there were, you know, the, the Spiegel study, which was the first study that showed that there was a, a relationship and, and the number of self-help books and even media stories that kept on citing that study and completely ignored, you know, a, a greater number of studies that showed no relationship. You know, the, the reality is findings are really complex, situations are really complex and research, you know, even though they might say, you know, there's a study that studies have found such and such, it's often far more complex and actually once you start really getting down to the nitty gritty of the, the research, you often find, you know, studies can be flawed, they can be inconsistent, um, people will select aspects of the findings or cherry pick aspects without sort of putting them into context in order to try and promote a particular particular view and you are absolutely right, you really need to understand, you need to see the research in its entirety and understand the research in order to make sort of broad conclusions. Oh, sorry, that's my under the desk. Um, so, one thing I was also thinking about um, is your experience of, of people that were in that study. So, what did you learn about other people through that that research? Well, in the, when I was dealing with women uh, with metastatic um, cancer, one of the things I actually learned was first of all, don't assume that people who have terminal illnesses are depressed. In, in fact, surprisingly, most of, most of them didn't have depression. You know, people would sort of would say to me, oh, how depressing, you know, you're working with these women, they're all going to die. Um, and in fact, it wasn't depressing. The groups weren't depressing. They, you know, the reality is people are initially very upset when they get their diagnosis, but most people adapt. And in fact, the strongest predictor of whether or not people became very anxious, women got very anxious or depressed, was actually what their uh, personality was like before the cancer. So um, some people who are already prone to depression are more likely to be experience an episode of depression after, after a diagnosis, and the same with anxiety. But a lot of those women actually continue to function, they adapt, they sort of develop ways of coping and, and, and even adjusting to some of the, you know, the physical treatments that they had. And the other interesting thing was when there was distress, don't assume that it was all about fear of death. Because what I found was that often, you know, when, when people brought to the group issues that were upsetting them, they were, they were often things like um, relationships with, with family members or, um, you know, things that might have happened, um, you know, that, that weren't necessarily directly related to fear of dying, which is, I guess, what most people tend to assume when someone has that, mm. uh, that, that diagnosis. Um, and I guess the third finding is, um, I think, 
you know, psychological factors don't play a really significant role in disease progression, certainly with uh, advanced cancer and, in my view, with even early-stage cancer. And that, on the, on the one hand, can be maybe upsetting for some, but it also means that people don't need to worry about they have to be positive. Because one of the things that really annoyed a lot of women in the group is friends, well-meaning friends, saying things like, you know, you just have to be positive, you just have to think positive. And that can just create pressure and make them feel, you know, very upset and sometimes guilty for not being positive enough. So in some ways, for some, it's actually quite reassuring that they they are entitled to feel whatever they're feeling and to, to experience the emotion um, without sort of feeling that this is going to somehow cause their cancer to progress. Wow, that's really interesting. And I'm sure people listening, you know, whether they um, are experiencing illness or are supporting someone, that's probably a relief to know that, that they don't have to create that buoyancy constantly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Now, just to change topics slightly, you're also um, quite well known as an expert in the area of health anxiety. So can you tell us a bit about what health anxiety is? Yeah, and this is sort of another more recent here. When I say more recent, since about 2005, I actually started getting referrals from a neurologist, initially from one neurologist, of people who had dizziness or neurological type symptoms but did not have a um, an obvious cause and initially the neurologist said look can you teach them to do some relaxation which I did uh, did do with with very little effect but then I actually started noticing that these people were very very anxious about their condition especially especially with things like dizziness or neurological type symptoms like twitches um, you know sometimes strange sensations which um, most people don't necessarily associate with anxiety I mean most people will know that if they're you know if they're feeling a lot of tension in the chest that that's anxiety but so these people were very hypervigilant to their own physical symptoms and very anxious about you know the possible implications. Um, so I started noticing a few things. One is many of these people actually did have health anxiety or issues with health anxiety. Um, in today's DSM-5 criteria, they would qualify for diagnosis of uh, somatic symptom disorder. Um, so they actually were had physical symptoms that were anxiety-based, even though I sort of didn't quite fully understand how that was all working at the time. Um, and unlike the, the cancer patients that I was initially working with, most of these symptoms actually didn't have a medical illness, but they actually were dealing with a fear of illness. And as a result of that fear, they were constantly monitoring their own body, noticing even very small changes in body sensations, becoming very anxious about those changes. And paradoxically, by focusing on those changes, noticing every sort of uh, body symptom, body sensation, they're actually um, stimulating the very part of the brain that was perpetuating their anxiety, and that's parts of the limbic system. So perpetuating their anxiety and perpetuating their physical symptoms. So it became, so what became obvious was that it's a self-perpetuating uh, self condition. Yes, and I think particularly clients that I've seen, males in particular, there's that sensation that they're having a heart attack and this fear that then um, starts to develop that they really start to monitor and feel if their heart flutters or um, mm -hmm. they often say, oh, it felt like it was skipping a beat, but all the testing reveals that there's no actual 
organic or physical issue. Yes. It's, it's arising from this yeah. fear of having a heart attack or that, that chest tightness that can occur with anxiety. Yeah. So with um, so with panic disorder, so when people have panic attacks, um, certainly that's actually a very common a sensation, the sort of fear of I'm going to have a heart attack, my heart's going to explode. In fact, I had somebody this, this week say, I feel like my heart's going to explode. Um, so the more intense fear response actually produces that, that sensation of um, pounding heart and heart attack sort of sensations. Often with people with who are just who have a lot of ongoing health anxiety, um, sometimes they may not have that sort of really intense fight or flight sensation, but they have more ongoing physical sensations. So it may be nausea, it may be headaches, it may be twitching, it may be um, tightness in the throat, it may be uh, dizziness, and, and sometimes really weird sensations. And often the weirder the sensations, the more anxious people become because people will often say, how could that possibly be... Um, be anxiety you know they think of anxiety as very much you know perhaps more fight or flight or tension or worry but um, they find it really hard to believe that when when we're anxious we can produce you know a myriad of physical symptoms and some of them really weird like visual disturbances yeah yeah, visual disturbances that is actually very common. Mm. Um, and again, people say, how can that be anxiety? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, I see that a lot because I see, I see people with this cluster of um, s- symptoms, including, you know, dizziness, unsteadiness, imbalance and visual disturbances that often actually comes together. And it feels like something neurological. Um, so it's sort of, for, for many people, it's kind of hard to believe that this could all be um, caused by anxiety. And the interesting thing is um, sometimes when, when, when I actually can demonstrate that anxiety is playing a role um, you know, and there are a number of behavioural experiments that you can do to demonstrate the effects of anxiety, some people are enormously relieved um, because they'll say, oh, you know, I thought I had a terrible illness and now I, I can see it's just anxiety. And some people get really upset because they say, oh, does this mean that it's all in my mind? Does this mean that I'm causing it all? I've created all this. Does this mean I've spent, you know, thousands of dollars trying to be diagnosed and it's all in my mind? And some people will actually then be more concerned if it's an anxiety-related disorder because it actually feels harder to resolve. So they'll say, well, you know, if it was a medical condition, at least maybe I could find some medications and, you know, fix the problem. But if it's if it's psychological, um, you know, maybe I'm never going to be able to get over it. And, and and also people who have a history of mental illness within their family and often actually people with health anxiety or somatization do have a, a bit of a family history of anxiety disorders or depression or sometimes other, other types of disorders. Um, often those people will be particularly distressed that psychological factors are playing a role and they might say things like oh so you're you know so this means I'm one of them I'm one of those mad people um (laughs) and they really don't like you know and and many people will really resist the idea that this could be um psychological because of the meaning that that has for them yes and you know and the shifting stigma you know sometimes if you've got a broken arm that's a little bit easier to cope with and people yeah. can see it compared to if if they have this perception that it's all in their mind and i think what people get really surprised about is um how very real the physical responses are to those internal or external cues of 
the anxiety creating such real physical responses? The actual the symptoms are 100% real. They are not imagining the symptoms. And I guess that's one of the things I really stress. The, the symptoms are not all in their mind. They are absolutely real physical symptoms. It's just that a couple of things. One is the source of the symptoms is limbic system activation and to do with anxiety rather than you know, other other serious medical causes and the other thing is hypervigilance and really focus on focusing on the symptoms tends to magnify any normal present symptoms so for example one of the things I do when I'm doing an assessment is I ask people to stand up and and I stand up with them and as I stand up I actually now notice that I actually get a a, a small um, a small momentary dizziness when I stand up now I've never noticed that before and I presume it's something to do with a change in blood pressure. Now, if I really focus on that, and particularly if I'm already very anxious about that and notice that, I could then also, you know, exaggerate and, and, and um, sort of magnify the sensation just by focusing on it. And I often explain, not that I'm anxious about it at all, but I explain that our body is a massive sensation. So there's stuff happening in our body all the time and, you know, movement can sometimes change, and change our internal sensations. But most of the time, if we don't have anxiety about it, we just don't notice it. And if they become, you know, extremely focused on every little change in body sensation they magnify the actual sensations within their mind so it, in in that way also they perpetuate the problem uh, yeah so i mean just amazing information there i think that you know as i said you're one of my psychology heroes and it's so great <laughs> to talk to you but just getting back to your experience can you you know you've had quite Know, specific areas there around your research with cancer patients and working with clients with health anxiety. What have you learned about yourself through your experiences of being a psychologist in those roles? Uh, look, I think just going into psychology generally, um, I think one of the things that I actually discovered that I never realised was that I had quite a lot of my own anxiety. And in fact, um, when I was when I was studying, we were learning to use various instruments, and we were using the. I remember we were doing this the Spielberg Estate Trade in, Instrument Inventory, and um, I actually scored quite high on anxiety, mm. which was really surprised. I mean, <laughs> I never imagined myself as an anxious person, and but I do remember that I used deep relaxation. Uh, I used my own relaxation tape, which was then the first the first version of Letting Go, which um, which, which still sells at the moment in in uh, CD form. Um, yes, and I, I have used... it in my sell it at events. But I actually, after I made it, I used to use it myself on a daily basis because I was always physically very tense and very roused. I don't think I understood at the time. I probably had GAD. I don't think I ever measured it. I don't. I was never certainly never diagnosed. But looking back, I remember worrying a lot being aroused a lot I remember lying in bed not being able to sleep worrying about different things that might that might happen I remember being at Centennial Park on a beautiful day and thinking gee I wish I could enjoy this day and just sort of feeling very weighed down by right. uh, by, by worry thoughts and sort of noticing it knowing it but at the time just not having enough knowledge about um, uh, you know GAD or anything else to, to be able to um, be diagnosed or to diagnose myself and interestingly looking back at my parents uh, who were both holocaust survivors I think they both had generalized anxiety disorder they were both incredibly anxious and um, and, and always worried and I, I think one of the things I've learned through through um, 
you know, through practicing psychology is, you know, just how prevalent um, anxiety is within my family. Um, I think also um, learning, um, you know, learning psychological treatment models, I certainly don't have GAD anymore and I actually don't get very anxious very easily now. I might get a you know, I might get anxious if I'm doing a presentation to a, you know, a big sort of threatening audience, but most of the time I don't. I do get a little bit socially anxious in, in some situations, particularly with, with large groups of people. Um, but a lot of that anxiety that I certainly don't worry very much. I certainly don't lose sleep with worry. And I actually think I... I had a number of aha moments when I was learning treatments for generalised anxiety disorder. And one of the things that I absolutely, that was so, spoke to me, that was that was incredibly powerful, was that um, worrying, and I mean, this sounds so self-evident, but whether or not I worry makes no difference to outcomes unless, unless I'm problem-solving. And that was, to me, an absolutely aha moment because I think I just did it all the time, like most people with GAD, just assuming some sort of protection and that if I worry, I will somehow be able to have control, anticipate bad things that might happen, be ready for them, etc., etc. So for me, there were a number of aha moments when I was developing or learning treatments for GAD, but for me, that was really powerful. And I can't even say the, you know, the, 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 the exact time or point when it disappeared, but I can actually say it's been a really long time. I don't use I don't need to use relaxation CDs. I don't use relaxation CDs. Um, I am rarely aroused or, or highly aroused. Um, so I think through, you know, and, and many people will say they, they, they engaged in psychology or they became psychologists because of their own issues. I think perhaps to some degree that's that's certainly true for me and it's been incredibly useful, I have to say. Um, I guess a lot of that knowledge has, has really changed the way I, I, I respond emotionally. So that's been really helpful. Right. Thank you for sharing that. So with your experience of generalised anxiety disorder, and that's when you were referring to GAD, that's what you're referring to, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you're you're not doing the relaxation rituals anymore and that, that served its purpose and helped you through that time. But what would be three um, rituals or things that you do most days or weeks to help keep yourself grounded or focused? Um, uh, personally, I, um, I exercise almost every day. I'll either go to the gym or um, do a long walk that's at least an hour every day. Um, and exercise for me is, is really important. Um, I have given myself permission to develop interests, which I never used to do. I used to be sort of very work-focused and I play bridge and I ah. love it. <laughs> and, um, and bridge is one of those things that really puts you in flow. You know, like when you're playing bridge, you are not thinking about anything else. It really requires 100% of your attention. Um, so, and I, we play once or twice a week, um, but uh, also uh, sometimes play online or, you know, play, uh, you know, play as a computer game, really enjoy that. Wow. And, um, 
uh, other things that I do. I, I think the other thing is just making sure that I maintain social connections and that I, I make more effort to reach out and to uh, to, to make sure that I'm um, spending time with friends. Whereas I guess in the past, especially when I was doing the PhD and perhaps a little bit afterwards, the work was so all-consuming. I sort of made very little time for social relationships and I think relationships are probably one of the most important things in terms of quality of life and, uh, and feeling good and I prioritise that now. Wow, that's great. So um, I've mentioned a couple of your products, but what is the best way people can find you or some of your CDs and books? What's the best way to track you down? Um, to track me down personally, um, I don't have a Facebook. I don't have a, um, a website. Um, I do continue to run um, training programs for psychologists and they can Google PDP seminars, which is Professional Development People Seminars, um, or occasionally I run um, still running courses for the on the APS website so they can actually find if they're interested in doing a course. I also do a, an eight-week program at Sydney Uni called Changing Your Thinking and they can um, Google that and if they're interested in doing a program through um, one of the programs through Sydney Uni, Centre Continuum for Education, um, that's another another way of doing it. Um, and if they're interested in, in CDs, in, in books or CDs, they can just Google either Change Your Thinking, which is the name of um, the self-help book um, that I've written, or uh, they can Google my name and, um, and uh, plus CDs and I'm sure the CDs will come up. That's great. Uh, or if they come to any of my events, they'll find them. Oh, or they can come to your events. That's right. Well, it's been so great to have you, Sarah. I really enjoy talking to you and we've crossed paths several times. Um, we have. We have. Um, <laughs> and um, I hope you, the TAP listener, have enjoyed it today as well. So please spread the word and tell your friends to listen to and subscribe to TAP in iTunes. And don't forget to give the show a five-star rating if you liked it. For more information about events and programs, please visit Carrie thompsoncasey.com that's thompson without a p thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of the abnormal psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential take care this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.